Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Clark. For the last decade, I've had the privilege of learning from impactful leaders across the globe through my service in the Peace Corps and nonprofits. Their leadership has inspired me to highlight those among us who are truly impacting our world so that we may learn from them and be more impactful together. Yes, leadership can be learned. The guests on our show are providing direction, inspiration, and leading the way in their business and community through service. Are you ready to have an impact? Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Can you share a little bit about, you do so much, you own a company that works with training companies and helps them grow in a number of facets. You have a book, um, Global Fluency, 50 Tips on Creating Culturally Competent and Inclusive for Am I saying that right? Yes, there are several books, but that one is my favorite thus far. (laughs) And then the Global Fluency podcast, and then you do so much. Can you, how do you do it all? And then what, like, can you explain a little bit of the beginning of how, what all of these are? Sure. So um, all of this started from a perceived failure, right? And um, for your guests that are, are, tuning in probably like, who's this woman? So I am Bertine Crevacore West. I'm the CEO and principal of Westbridge Solutions. We are a management consulting company that focuses on data-driven diversity. And I'll explain those different components as we get further along in the interview. And thank you for having me, first of all. I'm delighted to be here with you. And so this is going to be fun. So um, let's see. So going back to that question. So my goal is to have people is to really have people engage in difficult conversations. Sometimes that has to just do with the management consulting side of the business um, for for companies that are struggling, um, small to mid-sized companies that are struggling with whatever processes, systems, policies they may have, um, helping them build out um, some effective and long-term solutions for themselves and for their companies to reach what we call organizational actualization. So I built that off of Maslow's hierarchy um, because before we we get to the highest level, right, self-actualization, we have to have psychological and physical safety first, right? So that's how I approach life, but that's also how I approach uh, serving our clients. And then on the other side, there's the data, well, there's the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion component. And for me, um, my company sought to do something very different than what I had found. So traveling around the United States, literally one coast to another, north to south, um, I took every diversity training that I could because I, I love to learn. But what I realized was people were not using accurate words. Um, and that comes from me having been an interpreter for 10 years. I'm multilingual, I speak four languages. And in Georgia, I was the first nationally certified healthcare interpreter for Haitian Creole. And so while the first was good, um, one is not enough. So I sought to multiply that and, and become a proponent for every language being able to be certified. And so I was really proud to just push that forward. And so I took my interpreting background which focused on meaning for meaning, not just words. Um, And I applied it to data, I applied it to diversity. And so what I noticed was in DEI trainings, um, people were using politically correct language, which is the, the enemy of cultural confidence. It prevents us from getting where we need to be because it's vague and it's not specific. And it's so much, um, it's so very limiting and it focuses on our feelings and our feelings are not facts, right? So I know as somebody that loves data, I needed to use data to kind of have the data serve as a catalyst for people's feelings to be validated, but also to see where there are some spots where we can grow um, together and individually. And so data doesn't lie. And so when we have data, we're able to look at the past, we're able to position ourselves in the present and then plan our strategic um, just solutions for the future. So that's how that came into being. Um, And so with that too, uh, the magazine, well, we've got Global Fluency Magazine, which I started during the onset of the pandemic because I didn't want to create a newsletter. I kind of wanted to <laughs> other people. It was for purely selfish reasons, but I I made a, a point to just reach out to people in different parts of the world. Um, I'm thankful that my clients are all over the United States, but they're also in Europe. They're also um, 
in New Zealand, they're in Australia. So they're in, in various parts of the world, Latin America. And I was really grateful for that. But I was like, what can I do to bring all of these amazing people that I get to meet and interact with onto a virtual platform or into any platform? I'm having conversations with them. Um, let me create a magazine and create, I kind of wanted to Tyler Perry um, my magazine. And I was <laughs> people that ask me to be in a magazine I'm going to create one of my own and invite people to the table and who do I want to see who who do I want to talk to who do I differ from I want to know what they're thinking too so that's how the magazine came into being and it's gone let's see it's gone to so many places in the United States um, Canada as well as Latin America Africa, <laughs> Europe. yeah like when it hit Africa and Australia and New Zealand I was like what? So that was pretty cool. But I'll tell you this, the coolest place, honestly, that surprised me was Kentucky. I did not think that I had any kind of audience in Kentucky. And again, that was a growing and a teaching moment for me too, because people are interested in talking to each other and reaching out. And while that was, I think, a bold endeavor during a pandemic, because I knew nothing about being an editor of a magazine or or what it took to make that happen, I'm really glad I did because it was super fun and our newest issues are coming back. So in addition to that, um, I'm a best-selling author. I have been a part of four books, no, two anthologies, and I've released three books of my own. The fourth one is- Holy cow. It's it's kind of fun, you know. The first one, the fourth one, I should say, is going to be released um, in uh, next year. Um, so that's going to be my first book under a book publisher. So um, in addition to that, I help others publish books as self-publishing goes, um, because the book is a strategic business tool. And <laughs> I don't write romance novels, but I love writing books based on data. <laughs> so um, I'm kind of a a techie in that way, a creative nerd, if you will. Um, what else is there? Uh, if I can interrupt there, how, so if the books in the magazine and the publishing's a little bit newer, right? The magazine at least has been. Mm -hmm, the magazine. What was like the most challenging thing that you learned or what, like what was the, that moment of growth that you got out of there? Because with every time we seek discomfort, mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. it's going to stimulate some sort of growth that comes from it. What did you get out of the magazine part? So the magazine came about at an interesting time in my life. I decided to pursue a second master's degree at the same time. And so I got my EMBA as the magazine was forming. And I thought to myself, this is kind of bonkers. Um, but my, my thought processes was, well, I'd rather try and fail than not do it at all. Like I don't like living in regret. So one thing I did learn about this was first how to create a magazine um, from start to finish, um, how to assemble the right team to help me with that endeavor, um, how to ask for help, when to ask for help, because um, I tend to like to just do things and get it done. I believe in having a plan, executing that plan, mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing where the chips fall after that, right? Um, so it was really just it taught me about resilience, that's for sure. Um, it taught me to continue to strive for things that I never even dreamt of before mm. and see what happens. What's one of the major tips that for creating a culturally competent and inclusive professional environment? For sure, language. Um, language matters greatly. Uh, because it, when we use language that is appropriate to people and how they ask us to, to address them, that mm -hmm. is the beginning of everything. Um, one of my, my colleagues has said, you know, why do I need to know people's pronouns? Why do I need to refer to people as A, B, and C? And I said, well, um, I met them where they were. Right. And I think it's important for us to meet people where they are. And, and that's not good or bad. It just is. And so I said to them, uh, because they were somebody that um, very religious. So I said to them, well, think about the golden rule and what that dictates. Right. Do unto others as they ask you to do unto them. Right. Um, well, do unto others. Oops, I'm throwing out the platinum rule now, but the golden rule do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. 
and that's fine, but it's not necessarily culturally competent because the platinum rule states that do unto others as they ask you to do unto them, right? So basically, if I'm asking you to address me in a particular way and you do that, that means that you see me and then I feel valued, right? It has nothing to do with whether you agree with me or not, right? I come from a family of um, six brothers and sisters. We don't always agree, but we value each other. And there's something to be said about that, right? So being culturally competent has to start with first using words um, that are appropriate um, and not words that are vague or constricting or offensive. And I also sought to lead with inclusion. And most diversity trainings that I had taken, they were all about, well, lead with diversity, but I flipped the traditional paradigm on its head. When you lead with inclusion, you're able to create equitable policies and procedures for people, thereby creating belonging and a sense of community and natural diversity will occur. It will occur organically when you lead with inclusion. So words. It's just that so... Yeah, it's all the DI trainings that I have taken. Mm -hmm. I've always mentioned you bring, like, if you have the D and the E, the I will follow. Not but true. you have the opposite, yeah. Yeah, the opposite proves itself time and time again. And the data shows us that. The opposite, um, when you lead with inclusion, that leads to diversity developing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, naturally. Not yeah. being something forced, I guess, is like the word. So, like, what are... I think sometimes I struggle with when I'm speaking to certain people, like what is the most effective way to make a case for like the DEI space or those trainings to bring into the workspace? Like how would you give that to someone that might be put pushing back a little bit or maybe has their barrier up? Well, Andrew, people push back hard, not even a little bit. <laughs> not, a, yeah, not a little bit, quite I, a bit. I walked into all sorts of audiences <laughs> where they're like standing with their arms crossed and they're all like upset. And by the time I leave, um, they're giving hugs and high fives, right? That's not always the case, but usually it is. So what I tend to do, um, I don't talk about trainings because trainings are the last thing people should do. Um, and by that, I mean the final thing, right? Um, simply because when people do trainings first, that's like a Band-Aid um, on an ax wound. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? Mm -hmm. So what I tend to do is think strategy. Strategy is where it should start and strategy begins with leadership. So the way that we talk to C-level executives, you know, the chief fill in the blanks, the CEOs, the CFOs, the COOs, is first to do an internal analysis. That gives me the data that I need, right? And it lets our team um, build out a strategy for them. Um, I know my gift is seeing people in places and organizations 10 steps ahead of where they actually are and reverse engineering the process. It's fun for me, right? And it's like the greatest thing when you are able to know what your gift is and then you can just run with it. So first with the C-suite, I talk to them about strategy and how it's beneficial to their organization and how it's revenue generating for their organization. Happy and valued employees are productive employees. So it'll mm. benefit their workforce. Then with management, we talk to them about how to, how to lead a diverse team, how to put a diverse team together, and what diversity actually means. So that could be a virtual team, a hybrid team, a neurodiverse team, um, differing genders, right? Pregnant mm -hmm. people on your team. What does it look like? What does it mean? How to manage all of that? And then with the staff, we talk about day-to-day -day interactions. So that's when the trainings would come in at the end of that process, because we have to start with strategy, because strategy creates culture it's it's so much to unpack there like I a lot, but it's so fun <laughs> and then like how do you when you're working with an organization for the first time like when you're trying to break into I know this is part of your company when you're dealing with more of like the managerial um the more like systems and processes part with like the mission the core values and the vision how do you break take that and start because I'm sure it has to start in those places too but yeah. you you're not going to just take like that takes usually years to convince someone to switch that around so do you just focus on the business first and just say hey get become inclusive in the business in the business place in the organization then follows the diversity equity and then eventually it will make its way to the 
to the mission, the core values, and so on, or is it backwards or? I actually do it backwards. Um, okay. I start with the people first, right? While I love data, the data um, has to do with the people. So the people at the organization are what drive the culture. So when we start with people first, uh, taking a, a climate temperature or taking a, a DEI climate assessment, if you will, is just taking the temperature of the organization. Yeah, yeah people feeling and then what I do is a linguistic audit of the website and a visual audit like you're what are you saying what am I seeing and how is that in alignment with how your people feel so if you've got like this vision and mission <laughs> that have nothing to do with you know how your people feel then there's a, a misalignment and it's an opportunity for growth but let's say um like and I've seen this happen with some companies you know, they talk about, um, yeah, we have a diverse culture and blah, 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 blah. And then I go on, 90% of their top executives are women. Where, And then specifically one type of woman, right? And I'm speaking about mm -hmm. a particular company. Um, where are some of the guys? Where are, you know, are do you have any transgender people? Anybody from the LGBTQIA community, the neurodiverse community? Tell me who these people are, um, because they can all look the same and be very diverse. I want to make that clear as well. Mm -hmm. But what if I don't see that? Because first we see, right? And then if I don't read that, and I'm hearing something different from your your staff, there's a misalignment. So that's when I have a moment to kind of plot out some new vision and mission statements for them and, and kind of get their take on where do you see yourself going? What do you really want your company to say? And then for, I'm trying to take my time to respond because it's like, these are kind of new waters for me to do on like <laughs> recorded. I love it. <laughs> area, but how do you respond? Like I can imagine you get people that say, oh, we hired just the leadership or we hire the people based on merit and work ethic or X, Y, Z, and has nothing to do about their gender, race, X, like any other thing. Like, I know that's not the case generally. Like there's so many things we're just not aware of, but how do you, how would you respond to that? Or like, what are some things to, like, if I hear that myself, like if I'm bringing up and I see that, like, what is something I could say in that case? So when people tell me that, because that's happened before as well. So mm -hmm. when people say, you know, we hire people based on merit, my response is, well, you absolutely should. So, but then how do you measure merit? That's where I come in and, and really present them with an alternative viewpoint. Um, are you hiring, let's say, are you hiring from the traditional pathways? Are you, are you trying to do that? Why not look at alternative pathways? So Sometimes it may not be just hiring from the Ivy League. It may be hiring from technical schools. It may be hiring from creative arts schools. Um, it may be hiring um, from a variety of places, neighborhoods, people that you get to encounter, mm. right? So yeah. that, when I say, when I hear merit, I ask, where are you looking for the merit? Because if you're only looking in one place for the merit, then that's not a diverse um, um, recruitment. Yeah right? So we can find merit everywhere. We just have to look everywhere to find all kinds of merit-based opportunities. And then what are some other creative ways that people can look and hire for people in those like underrepresented communities? Sure. And I think too, first we need to state which underrepresented communities, right? Because there are, if I am in, well, let's say I put you in a room mm -hmm. um, full of let me think. Um, I'll just say, you know, I'll put you in a room full of women. All of a sudden, you're an underrepresented person, right? So that mm -hmm. shift that occurs that we usually don't think about, right? But if I'm in a room, let's say, full of white men, cisgender men, right? Yeah. Automatically, an underrepresented person, um, just by the sheer, the my face, my skin, my hair, like everything, right? Could be my glasses, you know. And I don't want to be, you know, facetious, but I'm just saying that, you know, yeah. you first have to define underrepresented in the context of the companies that we're working in, right? Sometimes that's gender based, sometimes it's race based, sometimes it's socioeconomic, sometimes it's neurodiversity. It's a variety right. of things. So what I always encourage people to do is. Once you've identified the, the group that you'd like to see more of in your organization, now comes the time for you to think about why are we not finding them where we've been looking traditionally, right? And if we're not, 
then how can we and where else can we look? So I always say, you know, um, go to schools or places or organizations or community events where you might not necessarily go right? Speak with people you might not necessarily speak with. Um, think of things outside of the box. So let's say if you're looking for a marketing professional, um, you don't necessarily need to look for somebody that went to SCAD, right? You might yeah. actually look for somebody that, you know, is at a comic convention, a comic book convention. Um, you might look for somebody that went to a different sort of creative school. You might look for, you know, referrals for that position. And, and the thing is, I say cast a wide net, right? First to find the position. And, and I would also suggest for companies in particular, um, do blind hiring, right? Eliminate names and addresses and just look at skill set, right? Not necessarily which school you went to, how you got to that school, whatever. But just look at the person's credentials um, insofar as their capacity and ability to be able to do the work that you're seeking. So in that case, the, the job position has to be very well defined. And then how do you... I've seen some job descriptions too where, <laughs> I mean, it can be well defined, but then you can, based off of some of the language, I guess... Hmm. That's so, because when you make it blind, I feel there's so many, so many like little hidden cultural things or certain, you know, like that's a difficult thing to kind of, because well, I kind of, I think there was a thing where there was a study that I saw where they, I think, I don't know if it was like the New York Orchestra or the Boston Symphony or something where they wanted to encourage more women to be a part of it, I believe. So they did blind, like they put a curtain up in front of the, the audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then they realized that people were wearing heels mm. and they could hear the jewelry. Then it was like, if it was like a louder foot or a softer foot, and there was like so many things that you could just pick up without even noticing. Sure. And weirdly enough, people were looking for it too, because it almost becomes a game. Right. It's like, how can we pick apart this process yeah. that was so diverse in its nature, right? Yeah. Um, and but it's good that they tried to pick up apart because then they saw the flaws in the model, right? Mm. I would suggest, like in a case such as that, if somebody threw that at me, I'd say, well, you know what? Um, we'd have to have like a soundproof room where people can record, and the people listening would have to be outside of that soundproof room, right? So you don't have the opportunity to see feet and hands and a soft foot. I'll tell you this: um, I'm a heavy walker. <laughs> and my husband is a very light walker. So you could just be sitting here and he'll pop up and you're like, why didn't you announce yourself? He's like, but I was coming. You didn't hear me. And you can hear me coming from a mile away. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's something to be said about really exploring how blind we actually make things. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then I know, I guess applying all those two will then make make anyone who isn't part of the majority there feel like they're not, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, not, not tokenized. Um, like that's a, that's a real thing. Feeling tokenized. Um, is, is it okay? <laughs> Bye. Here's the thing. Um, my philosophy is this. Um, I found that a lot of diversity courses that I had taken, um, and this is why I think trainings need to be the last thing because without a strategy, you can't have a really effective training. But um, it was educating white people about everybody else. That on its face is not inclusive, nor is it diverse. Um, it left people feeling um, angry, guilty, sad, um, all of these emotions that had no place in the conversations that we were trying to have because we were trying to have transformative conversations. But I myself was not feeling that as, as at all. Um, in a lot of diversity trainings, um, I'm not referred to as what I actually am because in, in cultural confidence, your eyes deceive you. Who you think you see um, above, let's say, that, that waterline, if you're looking at an iceberg, that's just a part of what culture could be. Yeah. Real culture is what's beneath that iceberg. And so that takes time for us to explore. So I noticed that, you know, Native Americans were almost never mentioned. Um, Hispanics and Latinos were intermingled, and it's not the same. Um, those are two different 
groups. You can be a part of one group or a part of both groups, but they are two different groups. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, being Black was seen as a monolithic thing. Being white was seen as a monolithic thing. If you're Irish, you're not an Aussie. Um, you can be an Irish Aussie, but you can't, you know, if you're not, you know, it doesn't mean you have the same culture, the same language, the same anything, right? Um, and this can be said of every race. I noticed that um, Asians were lumped into three countries when they're over, like what, they're, I want to, don't quote me on the number right now, but I'm certain that there are over 25 Asian countries, right? Um, and, and in addition to that, South Asians were never mentioned, like ever. And I thought, well, we're leaving out this huge swath of people. Africa was seen as one place when it's over, you know, 40 different countries with different yeah. cultures, you know? So a lot of these diverse trainings were not diverse at all because it left out so many important components of what diversity actually is. So that's yeah, what I did not to do. Yeah. And one of the interesting points is when I read um, Ibram Kennedy's book, How to Be Anti-Racist, mm -hmm. he was just talking about like the inter, I liked how you mentioned like socioeconomic or whether it's like myodivergent, whatever it is. Because mm -hmm. like I'm I've had my own times. I'm from Southern Maine, probably like the second widest state in America. I believe it is after West Virginia. Yeah, I and I love it. Stephen King's home. <laughs> but it, it's great. It's it great from May until August. And then the rest of it, uh, you have to go during the right time. But when I would go through Northern Maine sometimes and you see people living in different, I come from like middle class-ish. Mm -hmm. But even when I saw people from the lower your brain automatically just checks into like starts going through those those systems it has planted in you. And there's a reason that your brain does that. You know, yeah. there's a reason that your brain does that. So your brain, um, there's two sides of your brain, right? And I'm not talking, um, you know, um, right or left hemispheres. I'm talking mm -hmm. about, um, theoretically, there's your yeah. <laughs> brain, right? Um, that's the part of your brain that likes um, patterns and those that was instilled deep in our DNA because it was meant to protect us right from danger your brain is a computer so once it recognizes a pattern it's more readily able to predict how you should go how you shouldn't go right but then there's the opposite our modern brain and that brain is the inquisitive brain right the reason that we're in this podcast together that brain is what makes us ask questions that brain is what makes me go zip lining and nearly tear my arm off but you know that brain is what makes us do exciting new things that sometimes are dangerous, right? But that brain is what drives us towards cultural competence. That brain is what I like to refer to as the DEI side of your brain, right? You want to venture into territory that is uncomfortable, that is frightening sometimes, that is, you know, not always fun, but exciting and exhilarating because you know that there's something at the end that's going to bring you this bit of knowledge that you never had before and you'll be able to apply it to so many parts of your life so it's amazing yeah but yeah and then I guess one of the other questions I have is so once you start working and you're trying to develop more like a more diverse and inclusive team mm -hmm. if you're not necessary or I guess even before when you're trying to get that started how do you help find some of these um like advocates I guess I'll, I'll call them like how do you find how do you help identify those people? Because I'm also thinking, even though I'm the general manager of our my company, so I can take some of the higher level that you mentioned. When we start hiring people, maybe we can start doing a blind. But when I was working at another agency, it was um it was in that and it was in a different country. So it was like majority, like we're Latino, but so I was technically the minority, quote unquote, there, even though I was like a white cis male. But how would I be able to find other advocates in that space? And then how, if someone's in a bigger organization, how do you even try to influence, maybe not Amazon level, we won't go that big, but like if it's like a medium-sized company, maybe five to 25 employees, let's say, mm -hmm. like how does someone in a medium to low spot on like on the totem pole per, like mm -hmm. in this metaphor or whatever? Sure. How would, yeah, like how would they like start? So remember when I said um, language <laughs> words are like the key to everything, right? So when when people ask me a question, the way that my brain works is that I start to deconstruct that question and put it into like different segments in my my 
just visual feel like of my mind. So I always think we first have to start off by defining, right, what what we mean, what do we want to see. So there's being an ally, there's being an advocate, there's being a mentor and a sponsor, right? Um, and those are, they tend to get intermingled, but they're really different things. Right. So being an ally is is kind of being locked arms with somebody, you know, um, in, and there's a supporter. I should mention that as well. So being a supporter, I'll start with there, uh, a supporter. And you can do this at any level organization, but particularly for small to mid-sized organizations, it works out the best when we know these different categories. So being a supporter is basically, um, you know, having someone in your corner saying, yes, you can do this. You should do this X, Y, and Z, right? They're kind of cheering you on. Then being an ally is somebody that's going to actually stand there with you and say, we can do this, right? Let's see how we can make that happen, right? I'm going to try and help you do this thing. So that requires mm -hmm. a level of action that a supporter does not necessarily. Then um, being a mentor, that is when somebody senior to you, so let's say you have someone in entry level and then you have somebody who's senior to them that happens to be in the managerial level, right? That is that person taking you under their wing and saying, all right, this is how I'm going to open this path for you. And that could be as simple as, you know, introducing you to their network, having you sit in on their meetings in order to learn um, what they do and how and what that looks like, right? Um, and usually a mentor um, can be somebody that that looks like you or that shares a, a common trait with you, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be. Then um, being, let's see, I said mentor, then being a sponsor is somebody who is literally going to put their money where their mouth is, right? Um, that's why I believe so much in sponsorship. Um, I think it's an important thing to do. I believe in all of them, but sponsorship is, you know, when you are saying to somebody, you know, I'm going to make it so you're able to participate in this particular program, right? That's why Gwinnett Young Professionals was so important to me um, because I thought here's an opportunity to help somebody um, push forward to do something that they want to do that they didn't have access to for whatever reason, right? But the price that I asked, the repayment of that is do that for somebody else you know, when it's your turn, right? Because that's yeah. really um, And then there's advocacy. Advocacy is taking things, that's the highest level. So when you mention advocate, that's why I say it last. It's the highest level that you can, can help somebody at. And that is when a person in power, you know, a senior person in power is able to shift policy, shift processes and shift systems in order to create that equitable environment. And that could be, it doesn't have to be an all encompassing thing, but it could be for one thing in particular, or it could be for a totality of, you know, a variety of things. So those are the five phases that once organizations, you know, small, mid-sized, large, even um, understand and implement, um, they can see real-time changes where everyone at every level can play a part. Well, what about the person? So I guess my question, now that we've identified it, I still, I think it would be an ally. Let's say if it's a person at the bottom, though, how would they try to identify maybe which person at the top? Like, should they go to the top? Or I guess like I'm thinking of, I know friends in situations who are in organizations that are not um, uh, like DI friendly, but it's like they still need that job. Right. So like, How do you not infiltrate isn't necessarily the best word, but how do you like promote that within the company? and identify who those people are and then work it up. Or I guess worst case scenario, like if you can't find them, do you, if you're able to, do you, do you leave? Like, do you stick your, it's a tricky thing to balance. And I guess that's just where sometimes okay. I'm not sure. So let me understand the question. So you're asking me, how does somebody serve as an ally in a company that's not DEI friendly? Yeah. At the moment, and like maybe try to like influence it upwards, even though I know that's so unlike it's not common for that to happen, really. Actually, it's more common than you think. It's more common than you think. And the reason people think it's so uncommon is because it seems like this daunting task because they're thinking, okay, how do I get, you know, someone in entry level to influence the CEO? I, that's straight. Yeah. 
it's not a straight line. It's multiple steps that one has to climb, right? One step after another. It requires time. It requires resilience. It requires a plan. And it requires a lot of patience. Um, DEI, like Rome, was not built overnight, right? And so what I would say to that person trying to be the ally is um, first, see the need, right? See who's not at the table, right? See what benefit it would be to have that person at the table because what we want to avoid too is performative um, actions that companies take, right? And, and an example of that is like with the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of companies I saw had like a fist, uh, a black fist raising the air in their social media. And that, um, especially for someone that does what I do for a living um, based on data, that was completely meaningless um, simply because um, what are you doing besides putting up an icon of a black fist, right? I want you to show me data. I want you to show me how many of your employees happen to be Black, right? And of those Black employees, um, how are they feeling about your company? And what what actual actions have you taken to create an inclusive environment for those specific employees that we're talking about because of the Black Lives Matter movement? Show me graphs, show me charts, show me your annual report. That's what I'm looking for, right? And there are visual ways to show this on a company's website. But when I would ever, whenever I see a company that's like, hey, I'm like, all right, can't be bothered because I know it's performative because I've seen it so many times. Yeah. Easy fix, right? But for somebody who's wanting to be an ally, um, first they need to, to ask themselves why they want to be an ally. Because again, we want to avoid being performative. Why do you want to be an ally? What benefit does it have to you? Who are you trying to help? how are you going to benefit them as an ally? There's a lot of internal discussion that has to go on first before we decide to take this mantle on. And then once you do, understand that an ally um, shifts and changes, right? Not everyone needs an ally for everything at one given period of time. It can, it can morph into something different. So we can't just be like, I'm your ally, like, and just cling on to one issue, right? It can be a variety of things at a different period in time um, because that's how we become an equitable ally. Um, different things, different types of support are needed during different times for different people. It's a lot. <laughs> no, I love it though, because especially like at the beginning too, when you're talking about the performative part mm -hmm. with the company that holds it up, I love that you mentioned when you first start with someone First, you're checking the website and the verbiage. Mm -hmm. Then you're checking the people who work or you're checking with the employees and the people. Mm -hmm. And then you check with like the leadership, et cetera. And it's like out of those three, you kind of get like a rounded area. Because I've heard of poor stories of, I won't name them, but call, some colleges around the area where they have diverse, you know, portfolios and like photos <laughs> on their website, whatever. Totally. And then they just don't support and those people just like where where's all of that support where's that I, I have a friend who is uh trying to think of how to word it without outing them even though their school probably isn't listening to this but anyways where they're like pretty high up in one of like the student movement groups mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is supposed to be one of the big things that helps that specific group of people move in a certain direction and they get a lot of pushback from the school. Yep. And, but yet they say, oh, we're great for like this, this, this in group. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most, when I see them talk about it, it's one of the most infuriating things. But then that's where, I love that that's where you start. Oh, you have absolutely. to check off three and you kind of get like an overall grade. And you're like, okay, this is where you need this work. You may be doing great work there, but you're not showing it, or I don't, who knows for whatever reason, but. Right, and sometimes the reason is simply um, not knowing, right? I tend to want to give companies grace and say that, and hope that they all have good intentions, right? Um, but I also, you know, this is why I love data, just like, you know, Tom Cruise said in Jerry Maguire, show me the money. I'm like, show me the data. <laughs> Now, when I see the data, then we're having a real conversation, right? Um, there was a company that I saw and they had this really lovely um, annual report, really pretty, all the pictures, different people, right? But then as you really look at the, the language that they're using, and then you look at the data, you're seeing that these two things do not match, right? Mm. And that 
gave me a whole different picture. And then when you're looking at where the company's based and where they recruit from, another layer of why these things don't match. So we need to use a critical eye. We need to really um, critique annual reports um, in a way that's not created for, let's say, the shareholders to view, but as an individual working at that company would want to see yeah. it, right? So shareholder views can be really rosy and beautiful, but it's like it's like when you want to know more about a company's financial um, uh, strength, right? Um, you look at their annual, um, you look at their 10K, right? And you go yeah. down like line by line looking at, you know, and that's a good way to actually see a level of commitment to DEI. You look at, and I'm giving you um, a great big gem here. So, you know, you go to a, temp, a company's 10K and you look to see how much they've spent on DEI initiatives, right? Then you take that amount and then you, you know, when once you do like the 360 that we tend to do, you ask them, show me where this has been applied, right? Because that's another area where now we can see if the data matches what you said, right? Then we can determine, are you being performative? Because no company wants to lose money on trainings. That's why I'm like, trainings are the last thing. You can't just come in and say, I'm going to train you on this. And now your company is going to be great, right? That doesn't yeah. work. And that's why when most people hear DEI, their eyes roll so far in the back of their heads, they don't know what to do with themselves, right? Yeah. Um, I'll say this, even when I spoke at um, the Gwinnett Young Professionals event, I knew, like I was looking in the audience, and there were a couple of people that were just, oh, here we go again, right? And I was like, well, now is my chance to show them that it's not what they think it is, right? It, there really are practical steps that we can do every day to create you know, an inclusive environment for everybody. And others might be asking, well, why should I do that, right? I get that all the time. Like, why should I even be concerned about this? This doesn't affect my reality. But the thing is, when you create an inclusive environment, for one group or one person, you're really creating an equitable environment for everyone, right? So it's really like we're all taking care of each other when we do these yeah. things. And I think that goes back to at the beginning that you said, when we were talking about like me being from Maine mm -hmm. and when I would go up into certain places or even when I drive through the countryside of Georgia, sometimes I have my own thoughts that I probably shouldn't have. And that's like something I need to work on. But then those groups of people, like all everyone is included in that. Right. In that, which I love. Our, our, we all fall prey to our reptilian brain. And it's and it's a human, it's a natural human thing to do. The the other side of that though is, you know, unlearning things that don't serve us well, right? Um, so when we unlearn things that don't serve us well, we open up the possibilities to what can serve us well and what can be transformative for us. And it doesn't happen overnight. It has to, it's like, you know, droplets of water, you know, not having, you know, much impact until it becomes a rainstorm, right? And, and then it becomes, mm -hmm. and so it's really giving ourselves some grace too. I think people can be really hard on themselves. Um, we have to give ourselves time. I say this to, um, one of my friends, um, he was talking, he happens to be transgender, and he was talking about his grandma and and how, you know, it's so difficult for his grandmother to understand that that he's a he, and he's always been a he on the inside, even though he presented as a she, you know, at birth. And so his grandmother had a hard time referring to his new identity. Yeah. And I said, but I want you to think about something. Your grandma has known you, their grandchild, your entire life right? Now they're getting a different version of you. And so that's wonderful and should be celebrated. But it's also, while it's wonderful for you, right, that you get to be your authentic self, understand the hardship that means for them. Because first, they're mourning the loss of somebody that they knew. And now they're experiencing mm. the birth of somebody that is brand new. So we have to give them a little bit of space, you know, and yeah. so that requires grace on all of our parts. And, and, you know, I could say the same thing about, you know, a ton of other situations that, that could deal with any other different aspect of diversity. Um, you know, I'm a proponent of neurodiversity. Um, I think it's very important for us to include in conversations. But I also know that I have to be patient with people um, who don't automatically see what I see and get what I get. I happen to be the mom of a child on the autism spectrum who's amazing, but I know that I have to create a, a path for him and, and 
ourselves, all of us, um, to see that neurodiversity has always existed in our society, to know that it is not an illness, but it is a condition of difference, not deficit, right? Yeah. And make a make a way for people to have conversations about it, right? Um, so that requires patience on my part. I'm not a patient person by nature, so thankfully to my son, he's <laughs> a better human to the rest of the world. <laughs> so yeah, we got to give each other some grace. No, oh, I love that, and I, we could have a whole another second part, which I'm actually I would love to do at one point. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I really want to thank you for all the time, um, for sharing everything and just you know helping us all here. If someone is listening and they're not let's say they're newer to this journey and they're kind of like listening to this for the first time, what's some advice? Where should they go? Because obviously they're not just going to go to some DI coach probably and bring them into the company. Like what are some ways to kind of open up? Mm -hmm. Like the what's the saying from Mary Poppins, the spoonful of sugar? Oh, tell them the medicine. medicine go down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, So one of the ways is to first, you know, take, I would suggest, you know, start the conversation by saying, you know, I feel like um, we could be doing better in this space. Um, who's missing from our table that could help our team be even better than they already are, right? Do an assessment of that um, because honestly, companies understand dollars. Um, teams understand effectiveness, right? Individuals understand productivity, right? And happiness, right? Who can we bring on, um, or whoever many can we bring on to, to help us be the best company that we can be? What is being the best company that we can be look like for us, right? Mm -hmm. And once we define that, how do we bring them on, right? Um, and then we look at different pathways um, where we can find, you know, people from, you know, alternative recruiting pathways, um, you know, and then when we bring them on, this is the most important part. How do we make them feel welcome? and help keep them here. Because a lot of times companies bring on people um, from all walks of life, um, people get there and then they're not set up to be successful and then they yeah. leave, right? Um, this could be easily said of women working at law firms, right? Um, they're brought in, they, they're made to feel awesome, right? And when they get there and let's say a couple of years down the line and they decide to have children, all of a sudden they're off the partner track and then they leave, right? That's a huge loss of talent. Right. And mm -hmm. that's just one example. But like, why do we want to do this? How do we do this? And then how do we maintain this? Those are the three steps that I would ask people to sit and think about and have a few conversations about. But also while you're having those conversations, execute in bits and pieces. Right. It doesn't have to be this whole big thing all at once, which is what scares people. Off. Yeah, yeah. But then what are some like good resources that they can check out? Like whether it's a podcast, a book. So like Ibram Kennedy's. Uh, I have how to be anti-racist like that was a good one for me yeah what yeah. other recommendations that you might have so for sure Ibram X Kennedy um Ibram X Kennedy I'm sorry um on how to be an anti-racist um I would always suggest to follow us at Westbridge Solutions we're always <laughs> putting up you know tips we have Tuesday tips we have Friday facts um the tips are to help people accomplish certain goals, right? Small steps at a time. The facts are to give you the data um, to show you how this works and why it has worked and why it will work again. Um, I would even suggest um, my book, Global Fluency um, 50 Tips, because it literally has 50 tips on what you can do. Um, other suggestions that I have would be um, having speakers, you know, come in for lunch and learns like once in a while, right? On a particular topic. Um, one speaker that I happen to like um, very much, a good friend and colleague of mine, Aisha DeBerry. She is yeah. in the field, right? Aisha's amazing. She's a powerhouse. Um, and she has this particular way of explaining things that just make sense in the moment, right? That you can take with you. They're gems that she drops along the way. So for sure her. Um, and then off the top of my head, home out. There are so many. I feel like I should send you a list and I will. Please, 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 please. I actually one for myself and then I'll make sure to share it as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, That's one of the things that I found was really helpful um, to my clients. We created um, curated list for them on <laughs> for different things because I was like, oh, you know, start from the beginning. So I'm going to share that with you for sure. Please do. Absolutely. I think for if you could tailor that to people that are possibly like in like maybe 
small businesses or nonprofits that are kind of on up and coming, like someone for myself, for example, where we just hired our first person, we're growing, we're probably going to be hiring more people. So I would love to be able to like set myself up now. So that way when that, that next time the hiring process comes, we're more prepared. Because that was one thing I just completed the United Way VIP um, work program. Thank you. And one of them, again, like I didn't think about this one year, thinking of joining a board, what is their mission? Yep. Then looking at their statements, looking at the strategic strategy and the board that they currently have, yeah. is it as diverse if that's their mission? Like, does their mission, like, you know, mm -hmm. are they practicing what they preach? And that was another very like mind blowing it's realization because I never thought of it like it never crossed my mind like oh that's yeah even in this world we just assume nonprofits are always just trying to save the world and whatever else it may be but the world right are yeah. we saving the world in an equitable way um and when you're saying that like one of the people on our list too she's a um she helps nonprofits um with diverse board building um mm -hmm board inclusion which I'm a fan of um her name is Crystal M Cherry and she's really great and these are like all of these people we featured in Global Fluency magazine because these are the types of conversations where I was like oh I want people to be able to read about you know these amazing people in the world that I've had the privilege of meeting so you know there's like genius and greatness all around us it's just a question of tapping the shoulder of the person next to us and asking you know how do I do this so I appreciate you asking because it's my pleasure to share <laughs> no thank you so much and thank you for your time today um and then please share also your work if anyone wants to reach out to directly where can they go Sure, they can first my my website is um, Westbridge Solutions. So the website itself is www.westgrouptraining.com. And I live, work, and play on LinkedIn. So you can find me at Bertine Crevacore West um, at LinkedIn. It's probably the longest name you'll see for a while on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, in addition to that, you can follow us on IG and Facebook at um, Westbridge Solutions LLC and Westbridge Solutions on Facebook. Um, in addition to that, we have the Global Fluency Podcast, but I'm delighted to say that we are launching a new podcast in February, um, and that is going to, I'll be sure to reach out to you when we air, and um, that is going to be focused on um, best practices in management consulting, so I'm looking forward to that. Interesting. Thank you so much, Bertine. It was wonderful having you, and I'm sure I'll see you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. This was a delight. I appreciate <laughs> Thank it. Thank you so much.